and welcome to Pop Screen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are that corner of the Geek Show that likes to look at the good, the bad and the bewildering of movies, either starring about or by pop stars. No, the podcast covers a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson, I'm a writer for the Geek Show and Byline Times, as well as short filmmaker and video artist. And I've been joined this week by... Rob, I, I wanted to do it in sort of key there. You know, yeah, <laughs> uh, it's such an enigmatic and energetic intro. But Rob, just just <laughs> put a bit of a, a flex on it. Really, I'm going through my Aretha Franklin phase of introductions. <laughs> Not a bad phase. Not a mm. bad phase. I'm going through my. I mean, I also do uncut on the same. Network as as Graham. I'm going through my apologetic era. My sort of, I was going to say Woody (laughs) Allen, but I think that's a really bad touchstone to put put on myself. You would have to clarify what inspiration you were taking from Woody Allen before it got out of hand. Yes, sort of the awkward sort of New Yorker, not the the other the other stuff. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be a horrible thing to take inspiration from. Yes, but where can people find you other than uh, yes. Uncut? So the Uncut is the main thing. Um, that's the podcast which does everything these days. We've brought uh, broadened it from just directors to actors, and uh, we're about to record the first block of genres as well. But other than that, I'm the editor for the website for the Geek Show. Um, I guess filmmaker too, but on a huge sabbatical. Sabbatical so big that can I still call myself one? I don't know. <laughs> of course you can. That's the first step, being comfortable with calling yourself it. Yeah. And going on YouTube, am I a videographer? Am I a YouTuber? Am I a filmmaker? It's so many conflicts there. It's so confusing. I mean, there used to be so many names for people who did videos on YouTube. But now I think cock would cover the <laughs> platform. Yes. Yes, it would. <laughs> Yes. But Rob, you and I have been podcasting for years and years, of course. We have, uh, absolutely. The time period, not the band. We were covering them last week episode. Uh but um <laughs> it'll make sense. It'll make sense once the chronology sorted out. Um but the very first podcast we did together was a best of twenty fourteen show. Wow, yeah. It's going and back away, isn't it? It really is. That was for Cinema Eclectica, which we're, uh, I think we're planning to reissue episodes of on our Patreon. But mm. I bring it up because this is one of the films that I think you and I both mentioned on that show. Yeah. I mean, if it was to do that list again, this would probably have moved up to number one in a rewatch because, yeah, it's a, it's a special movie. I think the same, yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> I think my number one at the time was Interstellar, and I think people were like, I think Mark in particular was struggling not to just laugh in my face about that. Thing. <laughs> I still love Interstellar. I think it's great, but I don't think it's as great as this in retrospect. No, I can't even remember what my number one was. I mean, this is one of the few movie, few movies. I remember from twenty fourteen, maybe The Babadook. Oh yeah, all yeah. Um, I'm not sure, but yeah, 2014. It's amazing to think that that was nine years ago. But yes, yeah, we are on the verge of a tenth anniversary reissue with Twenty Thousand Days on Earth, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's scary. (laughs) Yeah, 
but I mean, not just for that reason. I have very happy memories of this film. Uh, I saw it a lot in the year that it came out. I think it's a film that is, I suppose, most documentaries about musicians you're into were very easy to sink back into but most of them are easy to sink back into because they're sort of comfort food aren't they they're not doing anything too adventurous it's just a series yeah. of clips you love of a guy you love or a band you love and and this is a bit different isn't it yeah i mean traditional music documentary um to go back to the youtube sort of comparison there's a channel called trash talk which i like um mm. that sort of mould of a talking head, some band footage. Yeah. Bit of re- historical recollection. You're on easy territory there. Yeah. And if you said to me, you'd say, Rob, do a synopsis for 20,000 Days on Earth. I, 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 you'd have stumped me, quite honestly, because I forgot how almost uncategorizable this is. It's a very dense film, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's mixing sort of um, a making of of the Push the Sky Away album, which I think is Nick Cave's best album. I don't know whether that's a hot take or not, but I'll, I'll go out there and say that. If it is a hot take, it's a hot take that I share, so you're in good company. Oh, yeah. oh cool. Um, it's also sort of a historical document of his career, mm. and it's also therapy, and also <laughs> has this... It's weird little interactions. My mind sort of melted into, <laughs> I don't know, with the idea that uh, Ray Winston and Nick Cave are, are friends. I just couldn't quite square that circle. I mean, there's a bit of history with that, isn't there? Because obviously Winston had maybe his best role, I think, in uh, the proposition John Hillcoat's oh, yeah. film, which was written by Cave. Um, there was a time when Cave's novel, The Death of Bunny Monroe, was going to be a movie starring Ray Winston. I think it was it was planned as a movie before it became a book. So, yeah, there, there's a bit of history there. I think Winston's uh, appearance in this is one of the highlights of the film for me. And it's one of the things I most remember is that amazing anecdote about his parents coming to watch him play Henry VIII. Yeah. Where his, his, mom's, me, but... his mum's reaction to it. Because he talks about how when he was playing Henry VIII, he really felt like a ruler. You know, he felt absolutely all-powerful and he felt absolutely in charge of everything he was doing. And uh, that was one time when his parents were on set. I think it was a, a TV miniseries he did it in. And his mum's first reaction was, so are you going to play it like that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what I like about Ray Winston. He he, he does not have any sort of precious notions about himself. Yes. He, yeah. He's very uh, down to earth, we'll say. Absolutely, and I think it is slightly easy to forget now that he's become the giant talking head of Bet365, but he is a genuinely great actor and a British screen icon, and, you know, when, hopefully in a very distant time, but when the obituaries come out, you will be able to, like, go through his career and pick out several occasions where he's worked with the preeminent British directors of, of uh, yeah. that era. It's a pity he's always reduced to sort of, he's the Cockney wise guy. Yes. He's, yeah. he's the Danny Diet, but if you've got a bit of money in the budget. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's sort of it. I think it is always very easy to under, underestimate those actors who just like to work. You know, the Michael Caines, the Samuel L. Jacksons, the John Goodmans. Often these are the best actors to me, but yeah. because they're, they're not sort of Daniel Day-Lewis, they don't come out every sort of four or five years with an absolute masterpiece, they make a lot of crap, you know, unfortunately, but yeah. they have always the best thing in those movies. The uh, Americans have a horrible term for actors like that, they call them character actors, which is mm. so dismissive. It's so strange, isn't it? As though everyone else isn't playing a character. Yeah, yeah. But it's a nice little conversation that he talks about um, 
with Nick mm. Cave? Have you ever thought about reinventing yourself? Because I am in my fifties now. I thought about sort of doing something different. Nick Cave says, "I could never reinvent myself." <laughs> yes. I mean, he, he, he's. I've got to explain it like this. I never liked him before. It was kind of like it took me ages to get into him. It was this foppish ghost made out of like broom handles and coat pegs <laughs> yeah. wearing like, I couldn't really sing yeah it's such a yeah. weird image and then then he clicked and... what's the time it clicked for you because i i had a similar journey with nick cave and i think that there's i don't know i'm sure there are people who've loved him from the moment they first heard him but i don't think either of us had that relationship with his work yeah. I hate admitting this because I think it loses me all my cred as sort of a fan of rock music and a fan <laughs> of like sort of mu- like movies. But it was the penultimate Harry Potter, funnily enough. Really? Ah, interesting. Yeah. I'm not a fan of Harry Potter. It's just it was sort of a behemoth, wasn't it, at the time? And yeah, yeah. That, that's that sequence, which I think that song's also from Push the Sky Away, if I remember correctly. I haven't uh, seen that one. I don't know what the sequence is. It's just a sequence where uh, Harry and Hermione are dancing. Right, right. Um, to a Nick Cave song, as it just happens. It's it's a weird little bit Kids of... Love uh, Nick Cave, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's just, I don't know, it was just a disembodiment between the music and the the song. And the, and the mm. personality and the music, if you get me, it's like the music was separate. It wasn't like here is Nick Cave on screen and here is the music on screen at the same time. It's like one was separate from the other. We're just like, yeah. oh, hang on, hang on. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I took a while with him because, like, I was probably quite a lot of British people. My first exposure to Nick Cave was Where the Wild Roses Grow, the duet he yes. did with Kylie Minogue of whom I'm sure more later. Um, but I just thought that was... Uh, that and a lot of the Murder Ballads album, I thought was just really hammy and just mm. didn't click with me at all. I, I like it more now, but at the time I just thought, oh, come on, come on. Um, and then a few years later, he did the Boltman's Call, and that was started to be the kind of point where even I have to admit that this is pretty fucking good. Uh, and yeah. by the time Abattoir Blues, The Liar of Orpheus came out, I was pretty much converted. Yeah, it took a while, but I, I, hate, I hate the words. I have a shameful history of discovering people too late. Yeah. The amount of times I discovered somebody and I find out they died like a few years ago, it's it's fright. I mean, MF Doom is the biggest example of that that I've ever had. I didn't mm-hmm. like him, and then he died, and then weirdly it clicked. I don't know yeah. why that happened that way, but I'm just grateful that I may get to see him live one day because I know I may be jumping ahead in the sort of the lineage of this episode, but there's a mom in this mm-hmm. where there's like people who have that good stage presence, but there's a bit where he's singing, I can't remember what the song is, to somebody, and he's sort of holding the hand of somebody in the front row. And I was just thinking to myself, I don't think it was Staggerley. I don't think it was from that album, but right. it was one of the softer songs. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking if I was in that, I was in that sort of situation, I would do anything for Nick Cave after that moment. That's, <laughs> that's beyond sort of stage presence. That man has, I don't even know how you'd word it. There's a magnetism there, isn't there? Yeah, there's a, a a kind of there's just something uniquely compelling about him, and I think there's something even compelling about him in the interviews here. There are a lot of rock stars where, when you see them interviewed off screen, they're just people, and sometimes that's quite nice. Sometimes it's, it's nice to know that, and sometimes it just destroys any mystique they have. But I think partly because the film is not quite a documentary because it does have these staged scenes with the psychiatrist, for example. It feels like he's performing, but not in a sort of tiring, always-on way. It just feels like he's always got that bit of his stage magnetism in the interview segments. Yeah. I mean, there's another bit as well where um, I guess... How can I word this? He gave me. He reminds me of um, 
David Lynch. Oh, yeah? Um, it was just the bit where they'd look at the books that he's written, uh, where he talks about sort of the weather. Yes. It's just you capture a few moments of, like, phrases and words. I didn't have the wherewithal to sort of write any down, but it was just his manner of processing things. I thought that is very Lynchian. He feels like he could be a creation in a David Lynch thing. The soul very it, easily. Now you've explained it, yeah, I think that's a very good comparison. Yeah, I feel like they both belong. They both, the both human, mm. <laughs> obviously. They the both, the, but have this otherness about them, which yeah, there's nobody else like them. It's yeah. I mean, there's, I know I'm waxing lyrical here, but there's a sequence where um, he talks about how his dad saw him twice, and the second time he said he was like an angel on the on the stage, which I thought was a beautiful bit. But yeah, yeah, kinda, yeah, <laughs> I could see yeah. that. But there's also the flip side to this is that that weather diary you mentioned is the product of going in and writing something every day even if there seems to be nothing to write about and while i'm sure that the the scenes depicting it are almost certainly staged because they're just (laughs) too kind of beautifully posed and lit but he does say that ever since he sort of grew older and stopped being in that kind of drug-fueled youth where the creativity just pours out of you he's kept his his career and his art working by going into an office and writing from nine to five every day because it's his job and mm. i found that really fascinating that is something that i suspect a lot of people do but nick cave and damon Albarn are the only people i can think of who've said they do that yeah i mean they're both very honest as well mm. there was a sequence that was a uh... Trending on social media, um, a prominent interview, I think it was with Zane Law. Oh, yeah. Where he basically showed that the riff for, um, I can't remember, I think it was Clint Eastwood, the, the gorilla song. Yeah. was basically just a preset from this set, this sort of synthesizer thing that he bought. It wasn't like a composed bit of music, it was just preset rock one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That sort of honestly is really cool, I think, in Rockstars, because we do build them up to be sort of these titans, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. And I think particularly when you're a rock star like Nick Cave, who it's understandable that Nick Cave's youth has left him with a, a certain kind of shroud of urban legends around him i think there was there was a story and i was never quite sure how seriously to take it that someone had seen him like sat at a train station when he was a young man writing lyrics with what appeared to be a syringe full of blood (laughs) with most people you would assume that was made up but you never know i mean if vampires, I mean, this is a, such a seg, like a left turn, but if vampires <laughs> were real and it was proven scientifically, I'd say, yeah, the cave was absolutely one. Yes. <laughs> but it's like a, a bit about uh, the birthday party as well. I mean, they're a horrible, noisy band, the birthday party. I love yes. them, but they're a horrible, noisy band. But they did have a reputation for being the most violent live band in the world at that time, which. Yeah. It's a huge claim because around the time, what was it, like sort of early eighties, there were some real bastards in music around the sort of American hardcore punk scenes still flourishing. Then you know you've uh, yeah you've got you've got some competition. I love the bit where he's analysing pictures that are being projected on the wall behind him of a birthday party gig where there's just this mad German man who starts pissing on the stage and he's analysing this like he's Kevin Costner in GFK. It's amazing. Yeah, it's just a wonderful moment. And, you know, the idea that he said that you're just sick of the idea of them being the most violent band in the world, so they turned it back to the stage and just sort of played the gig like that. Yeah, yeah. It's such a weird image to think about it because now that would be seen as sort of an outsider presentation of live music because there's so many bands 
that just here's a guy and girls in t-shirts and jeans playing some music. Ain't that <laughs> fun? But now, if a band played a gig entirely with their backs turned to stage, you're like, oh, such renegades, such originals. I kept thinking of things like this. I was actually thinking, uh, I was not thinking specifically about this, but I was thinking about Metallic Kale. Have you ever heard that? The Stooges live album? I have not, no. Where you can actually hear your like, bottles breaking on the stage as they're playing. And I was thinking about that a while back when uh, Royal Blood got into that snit at the Radio One Roadshow. Where they were like they walked off after like lecturing the crowd about how this is rock music, yeah. You you know, you can you can make a bit of noise for it. And I thought, oh man, <laughs> imagine if you guys were playing the like venues that the Stooges or the birthday party played. Yeah. Because <laughs> there are stories of that sort of era of sort of the seventies punk, eighties hardcore. Mm. Full on riots. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I went to and, see yeah. uh, Echo on the Bunnymen live once, and I saw them in Middlesbrough. Um, and they said oh. that uh, they hadn't played Middlesbrough since the late seventies when they played the Rock Garden. And anyone in the crowd who knows like old Middlesbrough music venues, there was like a, a murmur of amusement yeah. at that and uh, Ian McCulloch was telling this story and Les Pattinson sort of leant over and said something to him he went oh yeah Les found an ear on the stage <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's good that rock music's calmed down but yeah I, I like coming out of a gig with both my ears I mean the worst that's really happened in a gig I mean I would say worst I think it's absolutely magical but I've seen, um, I think, Future of the Left about four times, which is mm. Andy Falcos of uh, McCluskey and uh, Christian yes. Fitness is his solo thing. He has a reputation for goading the crowd and then just teasing mm. the hell out of them. And I think he just treats it as a roast between songs. Yes. That's, that's <laughs> as bad as it's ever got for me, really. And that's quite nice. You know, I've never had to be... Worried about anything. I mean, the worst another senses is I saw a lightning bolt and the play in the middle of the in a, they don't go on the stage. The play in the middle of the actual floor in front of the stage. So oh, climbing yeah. up the side of walls to actually see a band compared to the birthday party years, easy. <laughs> it's it's a much safer environment now, isn't it? Yes. Nobody on stage pissing in a provocative manner. You know? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Which is good, I think. It's good for music. Yes. <laughs> uh, but w w any listeners who might not have seen this film might have heard all of this sort of talk about the creativity of a daily routine and the psychoanalysis and thought, oh, this must be getting quite deep into Nick Cave's sort of his life, his thoughts, his personality. I think in a lot of ways it leaves a bit of that mystery intact. I think the true purpose yeah. of making this film and having these devices in it is to talk about creativity. Yeah. I It's really weird to talk about it in that sort of way because you're talking about the sort of uh, psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis mm -hmm. and a little bit of a making of, but it's one of these documentaries um, of a very small group, which just, it's filled with such sort of vigour and influence that it just makes you want to get up off your backside and do something. Yes. And when it's yeah. sort of celebrating somebody's career, I don't know how they did that. It's mm. a weird little bit of a, it's just weird, honestly, because it's a celebration yeah, um, and that that's purely what it is. It is a celebration of Nick Cave, but to feel like yes, I can go out there and I can do whatever I set my mind to when you, when the credits roll. Mm. It's bizarre. It's one of those reasons why I, I used to think this was like the metric of uh, whether a, a movie about music is good or not. But now I don't. But I think it still has value. 
it's why it is the patron saint of movies where you don't have to be a fan of the artist to get something out of it. No, no. I mean, uh, there's m- many other documentaries that... They're fans I only, think... aren't they? A lot it, of them. Well, yeah, and there's stuff that... I mean, documentaries are great because there's uh, music documentaries about bands that nobody knew existed. Like yeah. a one episode that I hope we do in the future, whenever that might be. But a band called Death never knew they existed, but it's a yes. wonderful documentary. Yeah, we There's, must get around to that one. You're right. I'm not like sort of doing it on air, sort of gaudy. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it could came up, but uh, yeah, it's there's all sorts of sort of uh, sliding scales. But I hmm. think this, it's hard to do this because you could be described. I mean, we found about Nick Cave quite a lot, but it could be excuse for thinking the documentary is just that. Hmm. Yeah. And it's it's not really. No, I don't think so. I think it's helped immeasurably by the fact that Cave is the kind of artist who can go deep in terms of what he does and why he does it. You know, the old cliche that the one thing you never ask an artist is, you know, where do you get your ideas? But this whole film is kind of asking Nick Cave where he gets his ideas. And, you know, he gets it from the relationship he has with his wife. He gets it from his father's obsession with literature. He gets it from the experience <laughs> of being an Australian move to Brighton. Yes. And one bit of dialogue I do remember from that book, a bell-shaped cloud that he can't get out of his mind that he saw five years ago. <laughs> yes. One bit that stuck out that I remember. And that's, I mean, that's very much in the spirit of the thing, isn't it? Because it's all about how those little things that are I guess in a lot of ways banal sort of stick with you and become part of your sensibility yeah yeah and it, I think it's things that we sort of take for granted mm. um, sort of as Brits we're used to the weather being crap absolutely used <laughs> yes. to it but I think here he says he hates it here but the lang like the the weather's influenced his music, and he couldn't really go elsewhere and do the sort of music that he creates. It's become part of him, and to hear Britain talked about in that sort of terms, that our bad weather's influential in some way, yeah. rather than just being sort of bad. part of the course. <laughs> no, yeah. it's because it's the way he talks about it. It sounds like he's get, it gets sort of seasonal affective disorder. Like the bad weather really affects him. I kept thinking about that, yeah. Like, I also have this thing where I will, if I have a particularly bad bout of seasonal affective disorder, I will go out and take pictures of clouds. I will force myself to find something worth looking at in that weather Mm. that I hate so much. So, yeah, I I did sympathise with that kind of weather diary quite a lot. I think it makes a lot of sense. Good therapy advice, maybe. Even if that therapist was real, I, I, I don't know. I, do, I don't think he is. He's too perfect a movie therapist, isn't he? Yeah, he seems like he'd cost like thousands of pounds per session as well. Yeah. And he never once says, and how does that make you feel? Yes. <laughs> Which I've been through therapy, and I don't think once he said that to me. Yeah. So I think that's sort of a lie that films tell you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Um, but we've, we've talked deservedly a lot about Nick Cave. We should mention uh, the other people in this mostly. Uh, I think in terms of being most heavily featured, you have his bandmate and his current sort of, it wouldn't, I think be entirely fair to say that the Bad Seeds are now a two-person band, but the creative relationship that drives it is clearly, at the moment, Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. He's honestly just as enigmatic. Yeah, yeah. I think. But he's sort of that enigmatic where he doesn't really want to be centre stage. Yeah, one comment that he makes, which I think is wonderful, regarding the um, the sort of the child choir segments of "Push the Sky Away." Yeah, he said, "I used to do this, 
but I couldn't teach, play music, and take cocaine at the same time. <laughs> Something <laughs> I had to give. Oh, okay, he's honest. <laughs> I guess. The most enigmatic thing about Warren Ellis to me is that he looks so much like Alan Moore, and yet he's called Warren Ellis. It's like he can't decide which British comic book creator he wants to be. Yes, that is true. And he also looks like uh, Alan Moore, and he hasn't become, well, Alan Moore. (laughs) (laughs) Alan Moore, he's created some good comic books, but he's barking. I guess Warren Ellis Ellis is barking, but he's in that sort of zone where he's also creatively probably as good as he's ever been. He's not completely gone into, oh, I can't remember the name of him, um, he's in Independence Day, he flies the, his ship into the giant uh, Oh yeah, he, he's definitely not Vanty Quaid. I think whatever else yeah, you say about Warren Ellis, he is not Vanty Quaid. <laughs> yeah, there's sliding scales and he's he's not like Alan Moore or Warren Ellis uh, at Randy Quaid levels. So he's doing alright. He's doing alright. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think the, the other thing that Ellis has, which I think is increasingly detectable in Cave's music, is that Ellis is a really funny guy. Like, the bit where they're trying to write the song and Ellis points out that it sounds like All Night Long by Lionel Richie. It really just, did. It's just so funny, <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it's a sort of cadence of rhythm. It's absolutely yeah. All Night Long. <laughs> He is a great yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And the, the sort of the the story about is it Nina Simone? Was it? Yeah, that comes up where the sort of talk about her being absolutely terrifying. She sounds like she was towards the end of her life, which mm. is absolutely terrifying. And she wanted the way that Warren Ellis tells it anyway. She wanted three things: she wanted sausages, cocaine. And what was the last thing? She, it was like she wants some champagne, some cocaine, and some sausages. <laughs> and it's just the way he told it. It's, yeah, <laughs> he's written uh, a book recently about creativity, which is called Nina Simone's Gum. And I haven't read it, but I assume <laughs> like the it's it's taking off from that meltdown performance where uh, where he met Nina Simone. But yeah. Uh, Just on that though, yeah. What sort of weird gig is that? Nina Simone and Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. That is the thing. Is, that was that that meltdown festival where the idea. I don't know if it's still going. The idea is that every year they would get a revered contemporary artist and they would have them curate a festival of their favourite musicians and artists. Yeah. And David Bowie did one and Laurie Anderson did one, Yoko Ono did one and Nick Cave did one. I don't know whether they still do it either, but there used to be sort of an indie space version of that as well called All Tomorrow's Parties. Yes, took place in, yeah. in Butlins. I don't know if it still happens, but mm. yeah. I know that sort of model. Interesting. Yeah. And it's very much in keeping with the spirit of the film, isn't it? Where, I mean, one of the things that makes it more than just interesting, but actually great, is that when Cave and Ellis do these deep dives into their formative influences, the directors, Ian Forsyth and Jane Pollard, will go right in there with them. Yeah. And it, they don't get involved as directors either. They just sort of give this absolute canvas mm. uh, for them. I don't know even the reality, the creative process of this. It just seems so completely um, modelled by Nick Cave and his, the conversations that he wants to have. Yeah. And these directors, they just completely stand off and let everything just happen and they make it happen to the best of their ability. Yeah, and also, the, the cinematographer is amazing on this, by the way. I just mm. want to say that. Yes, definitely. It's a gorgeous-looking film. But Forsyth and Pollard started off as uh, video artists, and they came into film actually through their interest in music because they did a series where they did recreations of um, classic gigs. So they did a a full-scale recreation of David Bowie's last performance as Ziggy Stardust, 
of the cramps when they played at the Napa Valley Mental Hospital and things like this. (laughs) I mean, the the inmates were probably the least barking people there that night. Yeah, best way I've heard uh, the cramps described is sort of spooky Elvis. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that's a good one. Interesting band. (laughs) But I think that's great. And... um, I'd, I'd seen a few of their short films. I haven't seen... They did a short film uh, themed around Milton's Paradise Lost, which probably has more attention now because of pre-fame Florence Pugh was in it. But I would also like to draw attention to their casting choice for The Voice of God, uh, which was Henry yeah. Rollins. That explains why reality is like it is, if that's the case. <laughs> If he is actually God walking in monos, it's been explains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's it's informed by this kind of really interesting ethos and this history behind it. But it, it's also like some of the bits I remember are just the bits where they go montage crazy, like when Cave is talking about first seeing Susie, his wife. And yeah. says, you know, she she reminds me of every woman I've ever like had a crush on, and there is this montage of everything from seventies soft porn to Maria Falconetti in the Passion of Joan of Arc. It's overwhelming, and it's like the the sign of people who re, uh, they have captured this amazing spiel from Nick Cave but they want to keep up with it themselves. They want to match it. And I think that's really exciting. If that's the way he is with people, that's the way (laughs) he talks to people. He could have any woman on this planet that he ever set his eyes on. He's a charmer. He is such a charmer. (laughs) But if he does that in every situation, if you've like given him the the wrong uh, goods at Wix, and you suddenly you <laughs> remind him of every cashier he's ever hated. Yeah, it, it, it's just weird things as well stay in his memory as well. He's like he remembers yeah. like two like twins in a white van, and he's t- remembered them for years. Yeah, but, I mean it's something that you said before. It's just this weird sort of blurring of realities. Like the Matrix is broken. Like you picture Nick Cave, you picture this sort of magnetic force of nature on stage and this great songwriter and then you see him on a bike going to Greg's it's it's (laughs) just two images of the world which don't really chill well that was uh, yeah I've told you about this off air but for the benefit of listeners a friend of mine was part of a music forum where Brighton based members were encouraged to post their myth destroying Nick Cave sightings and they you know, posted about seeing him cycling through Brighton, eating a Greg's pasty, sing, <laughs> taking his kids to a panto and singing along with all the songs. And <laughs> I think it's proof that if you could, like, if Forsyth and Pollard were interested in making a film, which is what this initially pretends to be, which is, you know, pulling the veil back from Nick Cave, revealing who he really is in his personal life. You could do that, but there's also no spot in that. It turns out that Nick Cave in his personal life is just some guy. And it's much more Mm -hmm. interesting to, like, expand that question of, you know, what is it in life that makes you want to create and say, well, what, what is it in life that makes anyone want to create? Why do people do that? Why has that been a reaction that's lasted for the whole of human history. Yeah. It's a remarkably weird movie because it doesn't really have any answers to any questions. Mm. The vision of who Nick Cave is now is, is goes into the title, doesn't it? It's 20,000 Days in Earth. This is the cumulative experience yeah. of 20,000 Days in Earth, which has created this person. Mm. So I talk about this person as a creative you can't really make that documentary because you could make a 21,000 days on earth and it'd be a totally different experience of a totally different yeah. person, especially with what the man's been through in the past couple of years. So 
It's... Well, that is the thing, isn't it? Because uh, we should mention that we are planning to do Patreon episodes that uh, cover the Andrew Dominic documentaries about Nick Cave, which and they basically are 21,000 days on Earth. They are basically sort of dropping by every couple of years and trying to take the temperature of where Nick Cave is now. Mm. But it's just to do that sort of documentary about a creator and where they are and why they create, it all depends on sort of the time you catch them at, really. Yeah. And this is sort of a perfect situation where it seems like he was at his most importantly creative. Yeah. If it was like a thousand years before, who knows what sort of film that had become, because I think it was before the trilogy of albums he did that this started the sort of ambient goth sort of stuff that he's currently yeah. done with that free album run. Yeah, because I don't know. Has he always been this person? I don't think so. I don't think the birthday party version of Nick Cave is this. No. Because he says, you know, he was like mad on drugs and went to the church to sort of atone, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And And that that version. When he got together with Susie, she made him promise to not go to church because she knew what he was like doing it for. That's a great story. It's. Sort of the perfect storm of a documentary. They got the right yeah. person to talk about the right sort of thing at the right time. Yeah. Any sort of other jump in time besides this, and it could have been an absolute mess of sort of new Rossies, and he might not have come across even half as well and sort mm. of majestic as he does in this. I mean, you have the conversation he has, because uh, there, there is this whole segment where he's basically driving around as sort of art cabbie getting his <laughs> yeah. stuff. Uh, famous friends and collaborators to sit in the back and talk to him uh, very much like Denzel Washington in the Equalizer 2 when he's an Uber <laughs> driver I think um, <laughs> but there's the one isn't there where he's talking to Blixer Bargeld and I think if you were taking my advice and watching this movie when you were not a Nick Cave fan you might find that scene quite unremarkable because it's, you know, quite placid. You know, it's just two people saying, oh, we've, we've had our differences, but we've come out the other side. But if you are a Bad Seeds fan, it's quite monumental. I don't think anyone really thought they would see a sort of happy sit-down chat between Nick and Blixer. Yeah, I don't know what sort of a comparison you'd get for this. Uh, sort of really bad splits from bands mm. and then just having like a nice cup of tea and said, yeah, we didn't like each other. We moved on. Yeah, good. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's quite sedate, really. And the yeah. bit with uh, Kylie Minogue is, I mean, that's just, it's so weird because Nick Cave is a sort of chameleon of outsider music. He just sort of encapsulates it all. Mm. And then you get the, I can't get you out of my head, girl who has like some of the catchiest pop songs of the past 30 years. It's just those two things don't fit together, but they do. And he has a conversation with her and it's just, it's so weird really it's, as an image. Staged, I think It's staged interestingly too. Again, it comes back to Forsyth and Pollard being very good at staging these things. You know, the conversations are real, but they're set up in a way that heightens them. I think it's telling that Ray Winston and Blixer Bargeld and everyone else is like sat in the passenger seat in the yeah. daytime and Kylie Minogue is sat in the back seat at night and Cave is looking at her in the review mirror. And it is very, very, and I'm, I have to assume deliberately, reminiscent of the end of Taxi Driver where Robert De Niro's sort of looking at that vision of Sybil Shepherd in the rearview mirror that may or may not be reality. Mm. Never thought of it like that, no. But you're right, yeah. It has a sense of uh, it being a dream. Mm. The There's still to... something about the idea of Nick Cave being friends with Kylie Minogue that feels like a kind of weird fantasy. Yeah, and it also seems to be very sort of surprised by it too. Yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't seem to believe the fact that it really happened. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. maybe that's him coming to terms with the fact that one of the biggest pop stars that British music has ever had mm. <laughs> quite likes him <laughs> and thinks he's interesting. You can sort of see how they meet in the middle too, can't you? Because everyone else who is in that Kylie Minogue sphere of pop stardom, you would think twice before approaching them. But Kylie's stage persona is odd in that she, on stage, she is every bit as sort of glamorous and machine-tooled and drilled and precise as any other pop star in the world, but she always seems approachable. Yeah, I think she that's an Aussie thing. Nice. Yeah, yeah maybe. I, think, I think that's a, an Aussie thing because you see interviews with I don't know, actors like Margot Robbie or what have you, mm. or Samara Weaving, and they're just, they're just normal people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a weird thing, really. I wonder if see, like. You see odd bands like King Gizzard and the Wizard Lizard as well, and you think, oh, they're just absolutely off their mind on drugs all of the time. They're pretty decent, normal guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think Australia is just the country where it says, you have expectations of us, allow us to shatter all of them. <laughs> I wonder if it's like you mentioned uh, Robbie. I'd also throw in Guy Pearce there as someone who seems just perfectly nice and I, I can't help but wonder whether the Aussie soaps are like the anti-Mickey Mouse club where they turn out people who aren't <laughs> horrifically psychologically damaged yeah I mean I, I didn't realize I mean you're just looking at the cast of neighbors throughout the years and yeah yeah it's lots of decent people <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's it's bizarre I don't know enough about home and away to sort of say the same thing there but I think Chris Hemsworth comes from there and he seems I mean, the whole Hemsworth brood. Yeah. yeah. Robbie was home and away, and I think Heath Ledger was as well. So, yeah. It's yeah, and just... he, he was just a horrible like victim of circumstance, uh, Keith Ledger. Yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah, generally, the Australia is just the most down-to-earth place on earth. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. It speaks English anyway. I can't speak for people in countries that don't speak English. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Uh, so we're, we're, I'm going to keep my powder dry on some of where Cave went after this for when we do those two late documentaries. But are there any um, further thoughts on 20,000 Days on Earth before we wrap up? Um... I think you said it best yourself. It's the sort of perfect documentary, like an example of a documentary where if you don't like the band, I'd say still try it anywhere. Definitely. Because it's, it, yeah. it's not really about Nick Cave. It's sort of about the creative process. It just uses Nick Cave as his vehicle. It's yeah. also, I know it's such a cliche, but it's one of these movies where there's so many images from it that just sort of cut past and they help, I think, uh, sort of cut through the idea of this image the documentary is sort of this ugly cinematic form. It's one of the examples that I use anyway. I know it, once upon a time it was like, I just stick the camera in the corner, people will talk yeah. to it. That's fine. That's a documentary. Yeah. No bother. But I think uh, there's, I can't remember what it's called, The Thin Blue Line is one example. You never yeah, remember definitely. Errol Morris, is that? I remember Errol right? Morris, yeah. That's a very striking documentary and this is too. It's just sort of two perfect examples Uh to stay with 20,000 Days on Earth, it's a perfect example that documentaries are, can be really profound-looking and profound-talking uh, pieces of art. Yeah. I absolutely agree, yeah. I would also I would caveat my claim that this is a perfect film for anyone who isn't a fan of Nick Cave by saying that if you're still not a fan of Nick Cave by the time they've rehearsed Higgs Boson Blues, I, I don't know what to say to you. I don't get you. Yeah, the live music bits, where he's just yeah. the way he interacts with that front row, like you're yeah. the only person on earth that matters. Yeah, that that melt any non-fan's heart. I think. I agree. Yeah. So, uh, if you enjoyed that, we do a Patreon where we um, have a bonus episode of this podcast every month. Uh, we are 
hoping to get one out on uh, one more time with feeling and this much I know to be true the two Andrew Dominic directed documentaries on Nick Cave very soon. Uh, you also get a ton of other stuff. Rob, would you like to just introduce some of the stuff that you do on our page? Yes. Um, Uncut Network is sort of the overarching name, but we have a Patreon spin-off brand in which we look at horror movies, horror movie franchises that don't really get the sort of fair shake. So, so far, up on the feed now, we have the entirety of Cube, which was a mistake. <laughs> I'll, I'll own up to it. Uh, Wreck, which is fully uploaded out now, and we are in the midst of VHS, um, which is a longer series to date and also has the highest highs and the lowest lows, I think, that we've done so far. Um, as well as sort of, uh, articles, uh, Unseen Asia, Once Upon a Time, uh, movies from Asia that haven't really been released here became too hard to do, so it's sort of been rebranded as Fantastic Asia, and it's just why we fell in love with Asian movies. So there's two things that you can find over there too. Nice. Uh, yeah, there are also weekly written reviews of classic tel- uh, genre television. Alex is uh, working through the entirety of Red Dwarf. I'm doing all of the mythology episodes of The X-Files and also finishing off series on classic series Doctor Who. So yeah, tons of stuff over at our Patreon, and it's all at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show. But we'll be back on in a fortnight's time with, I think if this one goes out when I'm planning it, it'll be the Christmas special of uh, Pop Screen. 2023 Ooh. went fast, didn't it? It did. It sort of snuck away while we weren't watching. <laughs> yeah. I think it's been such a rare pleasure to have a year when things happen that we, we're just not used to it. There's, yeah, there's been just... no spell of forced isolation or anything. It's been a good year for a lot of people. That's, that's yeah. cool. That's really cool. But uh, that'll be in a fortnight's time. But until then, I've been Graham. And I've been Rob. And we'll see you on the next episode. Yeah.